Hi guys, welcome to another episode on Teo Podcast, The Pandemic Press. I am your host, Rashri Heba Vassam. Last week, we had a bit of technical difficulties in which I attended to it and we are back on track this week. And uh, we have a guest. I cannot pronounce his name. His, his, his name is Jason. I'm so bad with this. Wojciewicz. Did I get it right? It's actually Jason Vojovich. He owns a company called Fractional CMO, and he's a researcher and author. His latest book is Marketer-in-Chief, How Each President Sold the American Idea. And um, he also launched hundreds of uh, new uh, products, including medical devices and virtu- to virtual healthcare systems. I will put that more on the description of this podcast uh, episode so you can check out um, his website as well. And let me, let me redirect you to the conversation we had. Hello. Hello, Roshni. Good afternoon. Yeah, it's afternoon here. It's morning. Yes. It is morning here in the United States. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's nice here. Where uh, where in France are you? You're in France, correct? Yes, uh, French Riviera. It's like Nice around that area. Perfect. That's beautiful. Very beautiful. You made a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, they say like destiny brings you to the place that you are meant to actually, I felt like this was my place when I came here. Yeah, I I think it's beautiful. My, uh, my family, at least half my family originally is from the uh, Barcelona region, you know, in uh, Mm -hmm. uh, right on the coast there. And they emigrated to Cuba uh, in around World War Two. Uh, and then uh, came to the United States uh, uh, later. So it's uh, uh, familiar with that area of the world generally. It's, uh, I'd, uh, I can't wait to get back there. But uh, for us Americans, they don't let us travel for good reason. We're, uh, 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 there are uh, uh, probably not a good idea to let too many people, uh, just uh, as the subject of our discussion today. Yes. Uh, it's uh, it can be difficult to let people uh, uh, let people travel when there's a pandemic going on. Yeah, I understand that. You can start by telling more about yourself. Yeah, you can start. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, my. Uh, I take it you'll edit out yes. some of the beginning part. Yeah. That's that's totally fine. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm Jason Boyevich, and I've been in. Uh, product development and uh, launching new products my entire career, uh, almost 25 years now. And most recently, I'm the author of Marketer-in-Chief, How Each President Sold the American Idea. And really, the whole idea behind that was really to understand how presidential history, uh, you know, how we could understand presidential history from a kind of marketing and innovation and branding perspective and what new insights could we gather not only about presidential history but about what challenges we face today and what can we learn that will help us not repeat some of the mistakes uh, that we've made in the past and how do we uh, how do we make things better in the future and you know, one of the most interesting stories in the book that's most relevant for us is, uh, globally today is really the story of Woodrow Wilson and the 1918 flu pandemic, uh, where, you know, the president at that time needed to deal with a war, you know, World War I, uh, the emergence of the League of Nations and a new global order, as well as a devastating pandemic uh, at this, all at the same time, uh, with real lessons for today's uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, which we are still, as we record this, as we are still deep in the deep in the middle of right now, 
what we learn from there to here has, uh, there are surprising parallels between the two. Yes, uh, uh, and also I need to add that the first uh, flu vaccine was actually released in the 1940s. And uh, it was developed uh, by Thomas Francis Jr. Um, and uh, uh, Jonas Salk, and they're all MD holders. And the thing is that um, they took a significant amount of time to actually develop it by isolating the virus from the patients itself back in, um, uh, during the pandemic itself. It was really fascinating to learn about some of that history as well, that uh, during the time the, the epidemiologists and the physicians really had limited treatment options. They didn't really know what was going on. There was a lot of confusion. There are great books on that that I reference in my book. Uh, the Great Influenza is one in particular that I think is fascinating for the average reader. But what was clear in there from my reading, and I suspect from yours as well, yeah. is that uh, the physicians had very little knowledge of what was going on, but they also knew that the science of epidemiology and germ theory of disease, there were some of the pioneering physicians at that time who knew, we don't know yet what, how we're going to solve this, but we know we will in the future. So they worked tirelessly to capture samples from live, and, you know, live patients and patients who passed away so that in the future, Yes. You know, we could work on vaccines and we could we could work on having some mitigation strategies uh, for the flu, which was just it's a fantastic read. It is a great way to I think it's a great way to pass the time. Yes, uh, I love it. And that's that's what originally it was the great influence of that book that originally gave me the idea to look at President Wilson's strategy in that regard, because some of that is covered in the book. Yes, Um can you uh, speak about that more in detail and how he actually um, kind of used his like strategies to kind of deal with the pandemic? Yeah, that's uh, what's, what's interesting about the uh, Wilson strategy uh, in the pandemic is how similar it is to uh, some of the initial strategies in 2020 as the COVID-19 pandemic was beginning to take shape. At the time, President Wilson was very concerned about uh, essentially uh, readiness of the American uh, ability to uh, supply troops uh, to the European theater in World War I. And any information that would be detrimental to that or that the, you know, the not the Axis powers at that time or the central powers in World War I, uh, Germany uh, and their allies, if anyone found out anything that said, oh, there's a pandemic going on in the United States, and that might prevent troops from coming over. That was a competitive advantage in the war. Uh, just like bullets and troops and tanks and all of those things, information was a weapon. So what Wilson's administration did is they clamped down on information uh, on what was going on. And they weren't the only ones. France did, Germany did, Great Britain did as well. The one that didn't was Spain. Spain did not uh, clamp down in information. They published their information like good scientists. And what they got for their publishing was it named the Spanish flu. And it was named the Spanish flu for almost a hundred years. People saw it. And when you read about it in uh, textbooks from the 1970s and 80s, it's still called the, the Spanish flu. So Wilson's strategy in, in a word was containment. How do we not talk about it and just not share information about that that's going on? The problem is that pandemics don't care, viruses don't care what our strategy is. Uh, and when soldiers started landing in Boston and then moved to Philadelphia, the outbreak broke out uh, you know, uh, very, st very strongly in those cities. And all of those kind of uh, minimizations and lies and obfuscations all kind of fell away. And that's what began to generate the panic at that time. And once that set in, it was very difficult for the presidential administration to control what was going on at that time. It was, uh, uh, you know, they weren't able to, and, you know, when, you know, 25% of the population of Philadelphia was sick, 
it was very difficult to tell people that nothing was going on and that everything was okay. Uh, so it's uh, Wilson's strategy essentially uh, was very similar to the strategy in the United States, at least, uh, in the COVID-19 pandemic, where trying to minimize the severity, trying to kind of say nothing's going on, or hey, it'll all be it'll all be fine in a couple of months. In stark contrast, in 2020, to the strategy used by the European Union, by China, and by other, by especially, uh, most notably, Australia and New Zealand, uh, to can take the pandemic seriously, contain it, lock down. Uh, that was just uh, again, we we did the same thing in the United States in 1919 that we did in 2020 with almost precisely the same result. Uh, uh, which was an unchecked spread of the pandemic through the United States at that time and now. Yes, but uh, back in the 1918, there were like conditions that uh, soldiers faced during the war. There were not enough like uh, food and, you know, these sort of conditions uh, sort of escalated the spread of the disease. While meanwhile, um, in the 2020s, you don't have, we don't have a war, luckily, or something to differ. It's just a pandemic that we and we have to only take the personal responsibility to not spread the disease or make the disease spreadable to one another, uh, to another person because they might suffer and have a possibility of dying just because of it. You're absolutely right. Uh, in 1919, it was almost a perfect storm of you know, trench warfare of a lot of movement of people, uh, you know, across, you know, in crowded boats, yes. you know, across an ocean to, to fight in crowded places and then come back yes. and get on crowded trains to go to crowded cities. Uh, what was interesting, uh, Rashni, is that some of the same strategies, uh, when you, when you read, the 1919 pandemic and the 2020 pandemic, some of the same discussions were at play from the epidemiologist at the time. Limit social gatherings, yeah. uh, close churches, close schools, wear masks. Yes. All of those same sort of things were in both as the kind of the front line of defense from an epidemiology perspective, the same thing we've that the Greeks and the Romans understood about pandemics. You know, the Okay, crowded places seem to be a problem. Just uh, you know that kind of basic observation, and the basic observation that it was a respiratory disease. So wearing masks was a key, a simple mitigation strategy. Uh, what was interesting from a communications perspective is that people still struggled with that message, at least in the United States. In 1919 and 2020, there was a group of people, and you could see there were posters all over in 1919 about wearing masks and social distancing, and there were protests against it then, as there are now. I'm not sure if that's something unique to the character of the United States, but it's funny how the first, kind of the first response to the flu from epidemiologists was so similar 100 years later, and uh, you know, obviously in 1919, 1920, there was no vaccine nor a hope of a vaccine coming in yeah. 12 months. Uh, so that is a unique feature of 2020. Yes, yeah. and uh, also I would like to say that, um, you know, like uh, during that time, um, I would say that like we didn't have any technology or some, uh, or some sort, our bodies would like adapt to the situation and we had to learn that, okay, now the flu is like a curable disease to some humans who have the ability, um, who have a very strong immune system and who have the fate to live longer. So that also plays a toll. It's like we have got adapted, like our bodies have got adapted to like fight the disease itself in, within our bodies. Yeah, that's, uh, absolutely. And uh, in 1919, that was the only choice, yes. of course, uh, was you know, kind of natural immunity and having the disease and surviving it. Um, my grandmother uh, was one of those people who used to tell that story. 
and I opened the chapter with her story. Uh, she and her brother at the time were very ill uh, and, uh, you know, caught the disease from a traveling salesperson that went through their small town. And many, uh, about 10 to 15 percent of the population in her small town died uh, from the flu yes. uh, at that time. My grandmother and her brother nearly did. Uh, so in addition to uh, natural immunity, the kind of ability of, uh, of physicians to have ventilators, to have, you know, to understand kind of that, you know, not only germ theory of disease that was not 100% accepted in 1919, uh, but that we understood what we were facing today uh, and use a data-centric approach to help us understand what's going on, what are the best treatment modalities, uh, what drugs may or may not work, how are they tested, and then obviously vaccine development uh, yeah. as well played a role. Yeah, it didn't take until like the 1940s for like the first generation of mechanical uh, ventilators to become available. And uh, how they developed the vaccine was the first vac the flu vaccine was like used for like for to fertilize chicken eggs. And that is still used to produce like flu vaccine, some of the flu vaccines today. And uh, it first started from an inactivated influenza A virus, and then slowly it developed to them taking a sample of uh, an inactive form of influenza B virus. And this is how uh, kind of the science part of the whole pandemic, um, how they actually came up with the solution the I think the, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, when you take a look at uh, history and I, I have the opportunity to cover multiple aspects of health as part of, uh, as part of the book, health is a part of the story for many, uh, leaders, uh, throughout history. Uh, Napoleon famously, uh, suffered from a number of health ailments, uh, uh, leaders throughout time had uh, United States presidents certainly are no exception to that. Uh, and, you know, what was interesting to me about uh, the implications of what, you know, uh, of the flu on, on a very specific, how does that, how does that elevate to the highest levels? Woodrow Wilson had the flu himself and was so ill during the negotiation for the League of Nations wasn't really able to participate in those negotiations and lend his voice to help push that through. And uh, essentially one of the key reasons the League of Nations failed to materialize at the end of World War I, uh, which in many ways led to World War II. I think hundreds of years later, we will look back at those two conflicts as one, as one conflict. Uh, but he wasn't able to do that. And as he was back in the United States, uh, he suffered a stroke uh, after, you know, after coming back, trying to take a tour to promote the League of Nations, had a stroke, had to step away from that promotion. And his opponents, uh, isolationist opponents in the Senate, uh, were able to stop any ratification of the, of the League of Nations, which essentially doomed it to failure and led very directly to, you know, the rise of uh, Nazi Germany, uh, and Imperial Japan. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting how he his strategy and he how he tried to do it because it was a first time experience for him. I think you know it's uh, it's interesting when you read uh, ancient history when you read history before germ theory of disease before antibiotics before antivirals before again, of the wide acceptance of vaccines as medical treatments. You see leaders that it, when you read the primary source documents and you read their journals, you read their diaries, you see health as a constant fearful companion uh, where uh, you know people were terrified of polio, they're terrified of the flu, terrified of plagues, and that every parent uh, had experience of having multiple children and nearly every parent had lost one or more of them. Uh, so it was, it was really a constant companion. When we read history, we tend to gloss over all of those details. 
We don't talk about them. We talk about the generals and the battles or the politics or, you know, the, these big agreements. But when you read their kind of their day-to-day -day life, uh, you know, it was a terrifying kind of companion. Doctors were not some, you know, were not a profession that carried a lot of the same kind of respect they do now because they frankly didn't have the, the tools they do now uh, to, you know, to treat illness. And they didn't have the same kind of scientific approach uh, that happens now. And it's, it's fascinating to actually read those documents and hear people be an abject terror of catching the flu uh, because they knew how dangerous it was. And they knew that they wouldn't go to the hospitals. The hospital is where you went to die and they would rather die at home. Yeah, and uh, it, it was kind, um, I don't know whether people still read of how they actually took care of health before science. It was all plants, it was like all about having a, a huge a mental well-being where you feel like you're not being controlled, you feel like you don't have, you know, these chains all over you. And that is the source normally of mental struggles, mental health issues. And um, that's why you have kind of stress and you feel like you're in this kind of routine uh, every day. And sometimes you think that this route, this type of routine is like too much for you to handle at all at once. And they say that if you have a clear mind, you will live longer because, um, because it all starts with your mind. If you're not scared of the like disease or you won't, there's, there's a possibility of over 99% that you won't contract every disease that is there available in this earth. Yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the links between you know, mental health, psychology, physical health, and, you know, kind of biology, are, are really in their infancies in, in many ways, uh, in terms of just understanding the linkages uh, between those things and how our mental state uh, and how we feel about things projects onto our, onto our health itself. And where is the line, uh, where is the line between you know, what we can impact from our own mental health perspective and what is more, what's more psychology, what's more physiology? And that it's not a, there's not a, a, a bright line between those things. It, uh, there's a blur and it's a, it's a, a really fascinating area of research uh, right now that uh, I find fascinating. I, I'm just a naturally curious person and love to learn about things and love to tell other stories. Uh, but that's a, that's a really fascinating one. And I'm, I'm, I try to follow the research as best I can on what, on what, uh, uh, you know, what science is learning about that. It's, it's really cool stuff. Yeah. And uh, you also have like launch medical devices or virtual healthcare systems. Can you please talk about that as well? Yeah. The, uh, I think one of the things that I'm most interested in, I've launched a number of uh, medical devices, uh, you know, cardiac devices, uh, you know, uh, you know, implantables, uh, wearable devices. One of the things I, I'm most interested in uh, is the work that I've done on medication adherence. Uh, one of the big issues as folks age is the number of medications that come into the, you know, that come into their life that need to be taken consistently at the same time each day. And that's at the same time that many people are losing some of the cognitive faculties to be able to remember to do that. Uh, so some of the most fascinating projects I've worked on have been those that meld kind of the biology with the psychology and behavioral metrics. How do we remind people to take medications at the right time? How do we make them feel good about that? How do we, you know, share that data with the caregivers and with the physicians so that we have that data that then can be you know, really looked at beyond the clinical trial data where the drugs were approved, that long-term use data, when you have, okay, someone has been taking drug X for the, you know, for this long, here's exactly when they took it, exactly how they took it. We can begin to draw better 
conclusions about medication efficacy if we have better data about adherence and actually taking that medication, again, beyond the clinical trial data that might've been done years or decades before. Uh, so those have been fascinating, innumerable challenges uh, in doing that around data privacy, uh, data collection, data storage. Uh, it's mostly kind of a data question rather than a, the biology wasn't very difficult. Uh, you know, the, the, the mechanics weren't very difficult. It was all about data. And I think that's where, when you look at medical device development today, one of the most fascinating areas is how you collect better data and how you use that data. It's the biggest challenge today in medical device development and launch is uh, the hardware is still challenging, the software is still challenging, but now the data has become you know, the, really the next great frontier uh, in medicine. And that's, that's what's really fascinating to me as I work in professional practice. That's awesome. And uh, also, uh, I would, uh, uh, do you have any new uh, innovative products you've released, especially during COVID-19, since the situation is that like people who are not vaccinated are like being treated last and you, what if they want to see a physician then? And um, they, there has been like situations like that arising. So, uh, did you come up with any new innovative products? Like uh, I was thinking that people would come up with a machine that kind of works like a physician. Like so, they just type in what all their like um, symptoms, and like the device kind of like tells them this is what this is what is actually going on and in your body. What was really what has been uh, really interesting is. All of the all of the testing technology, we you know we you know the nasal swabs, saliva swabs, things like that. All that technology is pretty well understood, uh, you know, and we we have the different reliabilities. The key thing that I spent time working with a few clients on over the pandemic has been how do you develop the testing regimens to be able to catch infection clusters early. That's especially important in, in the United States, especially with senior care facilities. Senior care facilities are uh, essentially, to your listeners who may not be familiar with them, uh, they're, they're a little bit of a United States invention. Uh, they, they exist around the rest of the world as well. But they're essentially group homes where uh, seniors, you know, 65 years of age and older, will live together in like a kind of a large apartment building. That apartment building will have independent living, essentially apartments or flats, assisted living where nurses will come in, and then memory care for folks with cognitive issues and more you know, advanced nursing needs. All of those people who are vulnerable to COVID-19 and respiratory viruses live in the same place. It, it, you couldn't think of a more perfect place uh, for that to spread. So what was interesting uh, over the pandemic was working on how do we catch an infection before it spreads to the entire facility? And really the answer is something really old. It's consistent, simple testing. So instead of the days long nasal swab three days later, uh, when you use like a Bayesian approach to, uh, you know, to the statistics, it, you would say, okay, we're going to do the simpler uh, saliva swab. Its accuracy is lower, but we can make that we can do the test much more often. And we can test multiple times a day and we can catch possible infections. Even though we, the accuracy is low, we can find where the, the, where the cluster might be starting, isolate that group, test more rigorously, and then you really know you can you can increase the probability of you know eliminate false positives by repeat testing, but that repeat testing has saved innumerable lives for those organizations that have implemented that. And in the United States, where they didn't, uh, it's been some of the most tragic uh, uh, episodes in really in our history. It's an unconscionable uh, irresponsibility 
uh, for organizations that have allowed the pandemic to spread and rip through those kind of facilities uh, where the fatality rate is uh, uh, saddening, you know, 15, 20, 25 percent of residents contracting and dying uh, of the disease, where, you know, consistent testing, very old ideas, you know, ideas Woodrow Wilson would have understood, an epidemiologist at that time would have understood, testing, isolation, you know, those sort of really old ideas, and how do we use technology to help us collect that data and map it and, you know, do it more quickly and more efficiently with fewer people, that's really been the, the thing I most, I've been most excited about over the last 18 months of working with clients on trying to develop and implement those systems. Yeah, that is, that is cool. So um, another question is, now we're going moving uh, to politics uh, because uh, you had uh, a whole book written on it. So who are the best US presidents and the worst according to you? I think from uh, there is there are a couple of ways to look at best uh, U.S. presidents, and what what I mean by that is, you know, there can be best from a uh, you know from a politics perspective where they they achieve their goals, and there can be best from kind of what I would say is a marketing and how they communicated kind of perspective. So. Let me talk about some of the best and kind of the five best, in my opinion. Calvin Coolidge, Harry Truman, James Madison, Ronald Reagan, and James Polk. And let me just talk about just one of those that uh, your listeners may not, A, may have never have heard of, and B, wouldn't really, you know, probably wouldn't, you know, go in and wouldn't think about him in this way. And that's Calvin Coolidge. Okay. Calvin Coolidge was president in the 1920s, uh, an, era, an era of United States history, kind of between the wars, high price prosperity time in the United States. So it's like, okay. uh, I think Calvin, uh, Calvin Coolidge was like after Herbert Hoover, like after the Depression, right? Calvin Coolidge was before Herbert Hoover. Okay, before. Yeah. So after Woodrow Wilson, after Warren Harding, then Calvin Coolidge. Uh, Calvin Coolidge became president when, uh, when Warren Harding died in office. So Calvin Coolidge became president and then was elected again during what the United States historians call the Roaring Twenties. High prosperity, you know, a lot of excitement and energy, very much like the 1990s uh, uh, in, you know, kind of worldwide, great prosperity. People look at Calvin Coolidge and they think he's a dour person, very stoic, uh, you know, uh, but what people don't realize is that this was exactly the same time when consumer marketing was just taking off in the United States and around the world. Uh, the most notable was the Sears catalog, you know, Sears, which is kind of no longer exists. The biggest innovation at the time in marketing was the catalog that anyone could get this big catalog anywhere in the country that the, the post office could go and get any product anywhere. It was the Amazon of its time. It was just, it's, it is impossible to understate how big of a deal that was. So advertising professionals were just starting to understand how to market a product, how to have the features and how to trick our psychology into buying something that maybe we didn't need before and how to create demand. Well, advertising pioneer Bruce Barton, uh, who uh, was one of the founders of BBDO in New York, partnered with Calvin Coolidge to create the modern political marketing machine. So how candidates were crafted as like they were products. What features did Calvin Coolidge have? What messages did he have? What was his marketing strategy with, you know, uh, with female voters who could just who just got the right to vote in his first election? Uh, that wasn't the case in the United States before. Only men could vote. Well, there's a whole new group. Fifty percent of the population could now vote. Would they vote like men? Probably not. Bruce Barton 
helped coach Calvin Coolidge to create messages that would appeal to women, that would appeal to African-American voters, that would appeal to rural or urban voters, and crafted his image as if Calvin Coolidge were a product. It has been essentially that way ever since. Before Calvin Coolidge, politics and elections and everything weren't it, you know, weren't something that the average person really, you know, there wasn't kind of a product view to that. After Calvin Coolidge, politics completely changed. And if there's one story that's important to understand, if you want to think about like, boy, I hate how politics is today. It was, it started right there in terms of how it is today is essentially Bruce Barton's invention. It's a fascinating story. So it's uh, one, it's uh, uh, one of my favorites in the whole book, kind of in the middle of the book though. So you got to get to the middle. Yeah, I, I would like to read your book uh, because I'm interested in the presidency as well. And uh, thank you, you reminded me that Kevin Coolidge was like before Herbert Hoover, then it was her, that it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? That's right. Yep. Uh, Herbert Hoover was, Herbert Hoover is an interesting story in and of himself. Most people feel that he was a failure for uh, essentially guiding the United States and the rest of the world into the Great Depression. But what people, most people don't know about Her Herbert Hoover is he was a, one of the most interesting, dynamic humanitarians uh, in world history. In Belgium, for instance, they still celebrate Herbert Hoover because during World War I, Herbert Hoover ensured, he set up the system that basically took grain and corn and wheat from the United States and got it to Belgium because Belgium was under German occupation and the Germans were content to let the Belgians starve. You know, uh, but Herbert Hoover figured out a way to get them you know, to get the, get the food in and keep the population alive, probably save 10 million lives. Uh, it's something that we, we kind of forget because we remember Herbert Hoover because of the Great Depression. Yes, Great Depression. But, people think that he didn't do much for the Depression. He just like thought that it would go away by itself. Right, which couldn't be further from the truth. There are many... Many of the programs that Franklin Roosevelt implemented and expanded actually were begun during Herbert Hoover's presidency. Uh, and it's one of those things that it, it's funny from a communicator's perspective like mine, I've always been fascinated in how people remember things. And it, it, they're one of those kind of well-known psychological uh, issues is when people look at people will remember the last thing that happened or they'll remember the biggest event yeah. and it will cause them to kind of forget all of the things that kind of led up to that. Herbert Hoover is a perfect example of that psychology where we remember him because that's the last thing that happened and that's the biggest thing. But if you were to ask people at that time, especially if you were to ask people in, in 1928, who is the best statement statesman in the United States, who's the best politician? Who is the hot, you know, who, who is the best person? They probably would have told you Herbert Hoover. Yeah. Uh, he was as he was as popular as it was popular for a politician to be. He was the best one, you think? I think uh, he he certainly was not the best president. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, just because of the circumstances, and, that, and that's where circumstances can overtake even you know, even the best person. But I sometimes wonder if Herbert Hoover would have been elected instead of Calvin Coolidge, how, what kind of change that would have been? Because we, it may have been a lot longer before we had advertising and promotion kind of inject themselves into the political arena. I don't think it would have ever not happened, but could it have happened differently? Herbert Hoover was a very different person than Calvin Coolidge and had a very different approach. He was collaborative. He brought people together. Uh, I just, the more I read about him, the more I think that he would have made a better president than 
he's certainly in my top tier for the people that just his mindset and his approach uh, would have made uh, one of the best presidents. But when the world falls apart around you, yes. it can be very difficult if you if it just doesn't if if you get unlucky. Uh, that's unfortunate. So we can't, the arrow of time only goes in one direction. So, uh, you know, we can't go backwards, but uh, it's an interesting what if. Yeah, and I did not know some of this information. So you're educating me as well (laughs) through this. So what what about Biden? What advice would you give him? I think that, uh, you know, our, our current president's situation is so different than those who came before him. Uh, in the book, I talk about the American idea in, uh, as an innovation, as something that, uh, and innovations go through life cycles like all technologies do. And we're in a stage right now in the evolution of the idea of the United States, kind of crafted you know, back in the 1780s, uh, and it's in a different place now. And the advice I would give to you know President Biden today is that the idea needs to be renewed and disrupted. This is very much like a technology question. The disruptive innovation is happening all over. You know, we see it every day. You know, Amazon disrupted, Walmart disrupted retail. You know, we, we see disruption all around us, so we're familiar with it. The entire idea of the United States needs kind of that disruption and renewal and kind of rethinking. And the, the advice to Biden today would be, what are, how do you lead through that? How do you make sure that people are having those conversations about the future of work, the future of what's the role of you know, kind of government and people, what's the role of, you know, race, identity, and ethnicity? What is the role of immigration? What is, you know, the role of economics? All of those things are, should be on the table for kind of a rethinking. That doesn't mean that, you know, disruption is messy, it's difficult, but trying to kind of keep things the way they were or make America great again, Kind of from the previous administration is exactly the wrong strategy. You know, the, to kind of keep things the way they are is trying to like trying to keep Sears open. You know, it's you need to rethink it. That's what Amazon did. Amazon rethought Sears business model and created a new one. Well, if the United States doesn't rethink its model, it risks being like Sears eventually just kind of declining and going away. But Biden has the opportunity to lead through that and think, you know, change the direction. And that's the, it's going to take some courage uh, to do that. Is he up to that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. He's, uh, there've been some good signs. There've been some other things that have been maybe a little bit too slow. It's, it's tricky. I'm not sure. uh, I'm not sure I would do better. Uh, It's a tough job. It, it is, and a huge, he has a huge um, responsibility on his shoulders because he's in that position. Uh, I, has he ever handled a job similar to this? I don't think so. No, it's, it's difficult. Uh, politicians are, are funny people, uh, especially career politicians like Joe Biden, where have they ever needed to guide an organization through a disruption and reinvention, because that's really the challenge right now. That's a difficult thing. You know, might it, hit, might it have been better to elect someone who had done that before? Uh, you know, someone who had, you know, uh, maybe an organizational or a business leader who could have done that. I think that was part of the hope from some groups with Donald Trump back in 2016 is that he was not a career politician. He was a business person. You know, unfortunately, instead of kind of that, you know, disruption and renewal and how do we do something new and different, it was very much about keeping the status quo and keeping things the way they were, which unfortunately at this point in our history is the wrong approach. Yes. Uh, I think we missed that opportunity. 
we need to adapt every single year, I think, because we are heading into was a completely different new era, especially during this pandemic. Right. Well, think about not only the pandemic, but think about the rise of cryptocurrencies. Yes. Uh, most people think about that as kind of like, oh, that's just a technical thing or that's just like, oh, that's for speculators and bubbles and all that stuff. What it really represents, though, is a fundamental shift on how economics happens. You know, instead of economics being tied to a government, they're tied to kind of a, they're tied to software and tied to kind of, uh, you know, the internet, which is a global phenomenon, not a United States or China or Germany or France or South Africa or Brazil. It's global and it doesn't care about the borders. That's a big deal. Uh, what if the United States government or what if no government controlled money anymore? Yeah. What happens then? I think that's what we're talking about. That's the that's the challenge Joe Biden faces is we need to envision a world and a relationship that people have with their government that may not be based on geography and it may not be based on money. It may not be based on political parties. It's really different. What is that? I don't know what it is, but people like Joe Biden need to be help us lead us through that. And that's my challenge with him is I don't, I don't see a lot of evidence that he knows how to do that or has a, has a vision for that. Uh, I hope I'm wrong yeah. uh, because we need him to be right. Just yeah. in the same way we needed Donald Trump to be right. The same way we needed Barack Obama to be right. Uh, we needed that. And it's going to be a messy transition either way. We need strong leaders to help us through that who are positive uh, and who can help cast a vision uh, of the future that is better than what it was today. You know, more in the way that like, and Abraham Lincoln was able to cast a vision, uh, more in the way Franklin Roosevelt. The key difference between Roosevelt and Hoover was that Roosevelt understood how to cast a vision. Even if people didn't agree with the vision, there was a vision. Yeah, that, that's what matters. Like, I feel like if most of the individuals in this world today don't have a vision and they kind of like do stuff that they kind of like, okay, I like this, let's do this. I think this right. is for me. But yeah, and I even I kind of learned uh, that lesson in my life as well because when I, while I was growing up, I was like, well, I like this. I like this. I like to be this. And I really didn't have a vision until I came here. So it, when I came to France, I started seeing like, I actually started knowing myself and actually seeing a vision in the future. Nobody actually believed it. When I started this podcast, it was based um, it's because I just saw the vision and I wanted to make um, my vision a reality so I started this podcast when I started it everybody disagreed with me yeah and now that so many things have happened during the world now they agree that this podcast was a good idea <laughs> right and that's that's the thing no one will agree you know I think we think when we when we look at history and I think your example is a really telling one that People won't believe you up front. They, they won't, they'll criticize you. They'll, they'll think you're ridiculous. Uh, they'll think you're wasting your time. But having a vision is the only thing that will guide you to that place. Otherwise, you just sit around and kind of, you know, inertia, the waves take you where they're going to take you in life. And when we read history, what's interesting to me about reading history is that we believe that we only look at things that were successful or failure at the end. You know, we look at like, oh, Herbert Hoover failed. Well, we forget kind of how he got to that point. Yeah. You know, and we think that because it ended a certain way that it had to be that way. And that, it, you know, we, we think, for instance, in the United States that no one criticized Abraham Lincoln. 
for instance, for having this vision of a unified country. At the time, there were huge populations of people in the North who thought that we should let the South, the Southern states, we should allow them to secede. And a really big part of the population criticized Lincoln extremely strongly uh, on that and nearly won. They nearly carried the day. Lincoln nearly lost his reelection in the North. Had he done that, it likely would have been two countries yeah. at that time. So we think about the vision and we think, oh, well, that vision succeeded. It was always inevitable that it would succeed and that everybody agreed with the vision all the way along the way. That's ridiculous. You know, that's uh, one of the marks of a strong vision is that people disagree with it. Yeah. And that people criticize it. That's almost sometimes how you know that you might be on the right track. Yeah. Uh, You have to believe it. Yeah, I believed it. Like I I saw a vision like in 2020. That vision was like you were living in a book, let's say. Like if you are living in a storybook, it it kind of was unimaginable. And it also was a blueprint for the for my future. Right. And I saw it, I took it as that. And then I was so excited that I actually had a vision for the first time in my life. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, okay, this is a good thing. And I tried to explain it to like even my parents. They didn't see. They didn't see, they didn't understand it. And they would think I was ridiculous. But you know, one day they will understand why I had this vision. Right. And it happened for a reason. Yeah. I think so too. I think that's uh, you know, the biggest, the biggest lesson uh, is, you know, having that vision and being able to see past it, even though you don't know how you're going to get to that vision. Yes. You know, having the confidence that only you need to see it, you know, yeah. and help move other people towards it. They'll get there with you eventually. And then once you've achieved that vision, well, everyone will think that they were with you all the way. Yeah. Because you were successful and everyone will, like, everyone will think, oh, I agreed with you from the beginning. <laughs> you know, they'll forget all of that criticism. And that's okay. Uh, that's Yeah, I think you know, even presidents go through this. <laughs> absolutely. It's, it's interesting to know uh, uh, each president, when you read their history, nothing was sure. Nothing was set. Uh, there was no, they did not live in, they didn't live in the future. They needed to live today and they needed, to, the best presidents had a vision of where they wanted to be in the future and work towards that vision uh, over time. Some were successful, some were not, but the best ones always had a, a positive vision for the future that they wanted to see and wanted to make happen. The in most cases, the, the presidents who struggled, struggled either with a vision, they struggled with a vision at all, or they struggled with a negative vision of where they wanted to be, that they, that they wanted to fix something wrong. Uh, usually the most successful ones were had a vision of what they wanted to do that was a positive vision of a future world, not a vision of what needs to be fixed. It's it's a it's distinct it, it's a subtle distinction, right? That there can be things that would be fixed along the way, but it's always about what that positive vision is for the future, and things will of course get fixed along the way. Yeah. But we need to focus on the positive thing. That's what draw. That's what gets people motivated, even when it's hard, because it's always going to be difficult. It is. Uh, and if it's just negative. Problem people will lose patience and they'll lose, you'll lose support. Yeah. So is, I, I also wanted to ask you, isn't the idea of being a politician, politician should be authentic and strong considering um, like a, on a marketing perspective and um, there should be like a kind of leader who would bear the responsibility and keep the country in good hands in quotations. Um, you shouldn't actually market yourself so falsely to the public as well. I think that uh, the best marketing 
if people think about marketing as spin or they think of it as lying or falsehood. And ultimately over the long term, that marketing always fails. Yes. Yeah. The most successful marketing is you've got a good product, good service, good brand that's authentic. It delivers real value to somebody. And you simply find creative ways to bring that message and bring that product forward uh, to the market. Good marketing is positive. It's authentic. Uh, it's honest. Uh, people think that a good marketing, like you get tricked into buying something. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, you know, good marketing is an, is, uh, when people feel like they, their trust is well-placed. And I think that's the lesson for the president as marketer-in-chief as well, is positive vision, honest about it, authentic uh, about that, recognizes faults but doesn't allow them to stop progress. That's what makes a good marketer-in-chief. Yes. And that's what makes good marketing in general. When it comes, when it's about trying to trick people or deceiving or lying or trying to hide something, we're in a world now where there is no hiding. Yeah. Right? Information will come out. Uh, and when people feel like their trust has been, uh, uh, you know, like they can't trust you uh, or you're not being straight with them it's very difficult to help people move along towards that vision if they don't trust you along the way. So I, I believe like you do that the, uh, the best, uh, the best marketing is authentic, honest, positive, and the other stuff, uh, other people can do that. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> uh, it's not sustainable into the future and it's ultimately self-defeating. Yeah, but do you think that it's possible during a world that we have internet and now it's easy to kind of like nobody knows about you, you suddenly get into the internet and you can easily be tricked? It's easy to, it's, uh, what's that old saying that it, you can feel, you, you can fool some of the people some of the time, some of the people all of the time, but it's hard to fool all of the people all of the time. Yeah. And Ultimately, yes, you absolutely, people can be deceived in the short term. No question about it. It happens all the time. It can even feel like it's long-term where people believe things and they think things for a long period of time that are false, demonstrably false, and that have poor evidence. But over time, over time, the, uh, John Adams, the second U.S. president, had a saying about this. It's one of my favorite sayings. He said it in a court case before he became president. And it was, facts are stubborn things. And what makes them stubborn is that over time, facts and the truth don't change. They are, they are steady into the future. Lies change. Deception changes. But the facts are always true north. And over time, you know, people will realize what the truth is. It may take a long time. Uh, and it, not everyone will get there at the same time. But you can't fool all the people all of the time. Yeah. It's, it's self-defeating to try to deceive people. It's only going to win. You'll, you'll only get there. It's only going to work really temporarily. And the blowback to that is very challenging. So uh, uh, true north is the truth. Uh, and if you let that guide you, uh, you'll do better, not only as a politician, as a, as a marketer, uh, over the long term, you'll be yeah. successful. CEO, any leader, basically. Any leader, any leader. This is a, it's a lesson for any leader at any level uh, is positive vision, be honest with people, guide them along, uh, and they'll get there. Uh, uh, they'll get there in time. Uh, it may take time, but the leader's job is to stay true to that vision and stay positive and stay on that path. That's what makes it so hard. It's, it's not easy to do. It's easy to say, it's easy. it is not easy to do. Yeah. 
And uh, does uh, marketing involve a lot of persuasion techniques? What are they? Marketing is, uh, there's a big part of marketing that is, uh, that is married up with the psychology of persuasion. Okay? And uh, marketers have borrowed, begged, and stolen techniques from psychology, both at the individual level and at the group level. One of the best ways to kind of think about that is marketers take advantage of and they look at cognitive biases are one of the most fruitful ways that we, that we look at persuasion strategies. You know, we talked about a couple of those cognitive biases uh, here, you know, recency effect, where we tend to remember the most recent thing or the biggest thing and ignore all the other things. Uh, all manner of those uh, persuasion techniques are at play. There's a lot of psychology. If you look at, you know, how advertising is sold to you, you know, appeals to kind of vanity that appeals to, okay, you're getting older, you want to be younger. Well, why is that? You know, why is getting older bad? Why is being younger good? Yeah. You know, but again, if you're not thinking about it much, you know, a lot of marketing folks will want to uh, not will want you not to think about something very much. And in other cases, if you're not thinking about it much, they want to, you to think about it a lot. Yes. You know, so in a, again, it's all about well, what what do they want in the end? They want you to buy something, think something, vote for something. Uh, that's the that's the end goal. My advice to people when they encounter marketing, politics, or information on the internet is think about it as if you are walking into a Walmart or going online to Amazon. Think about the news. Think about going to read The Guardian or read The New York Times or whatever. Think about it as if that website were Amazon. And every story in there was trying to sell you something because every story is. Now, you might not have to put your credit card in to pay for that, but they want you to think a certain way. They want you to believe a certain thing. Uh, eventually, they might want you to vote a certain way. Well, just because it's not money doesn't mean that it's not persuasion and doesn't mean that it's not marketing. And I, when I think about it that way, and I look at a website and I think, why are they writing that story? What do they want me to think? What benefit do they get? What benefit do I get? If I think about it in that way, I am much less likely to be persuaded without knowing it. That's the, that's the big thing. So much persuasion happens without you consciously being aware of it. My suggestion is be intentional about it. If you're going to believe something, you know, make an intentional, conscious choice as if you were, you know, you're taking out your credit card and you're going to pay for it. If you think about it in that way, uh, you will, uh, you'll be more successful over time uh, and you are less likely to be in a place where you are, uh, uh, you're being persuaded, you're doing things that you don't want to do, that be intentional. Yes. And also you talk about the American idea. Is that more like um, even our presidents actually promoting the American dream also in a way? Absolutely, they are. Uh, when we think about the American idea, it's we don't think about it that way now because the United States means so many things to so many people around the world. Yeah. Okay? Uh, this land of opportunity, or is it an imperialist? Is it a military power? Whatever the case may be. But if you go back to its core, the American idea was, you know, self-government, you know, laws, not people, you know, no kings, no military dictatorships, nothing like that. That was completely innovative in 1770, you know, in that era, no one in Europe thought that was the right thing to do. Yeah. You know, no one in Africa, no one in South America, no one in Asia thought that that was, that was completely new uh, in the world. There have been smatterings of it around, but completely new experiment, completely new innovation. 
And that idea has taken root and grown over time. And it's kind of like a product that started tiny. And now it's this product with all kinds of accessories. And it's got this, it's got a TV show attached to it and all kinds of things. So the president in the beginning had to worry about just, just the idea that people could govern themselves. Well, now we have, now the president has to manage a, a one of its product lines is its military. One of its, the economic power, one is immigration. There are just so many things now that the president needs to manage that the person did not need to manage 200 years ago. But it's, you can think about it that way, that the idea has just grown, it's gotten bigger. And in many ways, it's gotten a little unwieldy. You know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's still appealing, but it's got problems. And, you know, that's kind of the idea, that's the perspective I take that kind of underlines the entire book is what if we thought about it as if you were managing a product line, you know, or, you know, that the idea itself is an innovation that needs to be managed uh, appropriately. So I feel every president had a responsibility and a role there, and some did better than others uh, over time. But, you know, the idea has grown whether or not the president led it well or not. Uh, so, uh, again, sometimes good products in the marketplace can succeed despite a bad CEO. It happens. Uh, but eventually, you need good leadership. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's, that is true. Anyways, we spoke for like almost an hour. <laughs> yeah. And it was great having you, um, Jason. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I am a big believer in your vision and kind of how you're moving this forward. I think it's a fascinating, you know, ongoing discussion. Uh, I believe in your vision. I support you along the way. And I can't wait to see yeah. you get there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I also have like a future plan as well. Um, I want to be someone in life, I don't know, and I was given, I think that I was given this vision to actually come to a realization that this is how you get there. Yes. <laughs> I'm excited. I, I can't wait to see how you continue to, uh, you know, continue uh, to do that, uh, continue to advance, uh, and continue to achieve your vision. Uh, we're all rooting for you. Yeah. Okay. And uh, thank you for actually joining us. And uh, if you want to have any other topics you would like to talk about, you can always send me a message and we could actually uh, organize a time for that and we can talk about it. That sounds great. Thank you. We're back at it again to another end of another very interesting episode. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We are available on everywhere, actually. We actually recently joined iHeartRadio as well. So you can check us out there. And uh, also, my book is released. Uh, it's called Unveiling the Truth Behind Catherine's Destiny. You can buy it from Amazon. It's available. And... Um, Make sure you keep on sharing this podcast on subscribing to Teo Academy on YouTube, as you can see the virtual version of the podcast uh, of some of the important podcast episodes. And I'll see you next time. I am your host, Rashni Hema and I'm signing out.